Welcome to the AI Decision Guy podcast, the show where we explore the intriguing balance between artificial intelligence and human decision-making. I'm your host, Dr. Carlos Kemeny, and in each episode, we dive deep into the world of AI and its impact on various industries. Dr. Ben Tangelson is the Vice President of Data Science at IntelliCare, where he leads a team of data scientists and analysts in their mission to generate as much value as possible from IntelliCare's data. Founded in 2014, IntelliCare is the leading tech-enabled nurse staffing platform for healthcare organizations in the United States. Through their AI-based platform, they schedule and match nursing professionals with open assignments across the country. He earned his PhD in economics from Carnegie Mellon University's Tepper School of Business, where he studied labor markets, business cycles, and game theory. Okay, well, this is the episode I've been waiting for. I have Ben here, and Ben is a good friend. We oftentimes actually connect during Mark Madness. I get an email from Ben, and I think data really joins us at the hip, but so does Mark Madness, and I always lose, so that's always expected. And Ben, I think that you're not last place. That's always expected. I'm usually like second to last. Yeah, so that's good. But I, but I, as much as you are better than me at uh, March Madness, you are an incredible uh, data mind, uh, data science brain. I, uh, I'm excited about today's uh, episode. So thanks for joining us, Ben. Yeah, super, super excited to be here. Always a great day when I get to talk to Carlos Kemeny. <laughs> well, it's good. We're gonna just dive in because I feel like there's so much to cover. But I, maybe to start, let's go through how, well, let's talk about your journey and let's go through Wayfair. I mean, you are a marketplace wizard and you did a PhD in economics at Carnegie Mellon. I think you studied pricing optimization there. So I want to talk a little bit about that, but then get into IntelliCare, maybe give us a little bit of a bird's eye view into the work that you're doing right now and transforming nursing and these marketplaces of how to deliver care to folks across the world. Yeah, sure. So um, I'll keep it real quick, but went to Carnegie Mellon, did the PhD in economics, studied uh, a lot of random things, and there was a fair bit on labor market matching problems and search frictions. And so how do those matching frictions fluctuate in the face of like credit market frictions or other markets that might demonstrate some uh, search frictions. Uh, but also learned a great thing at Carnegie Mellon, which was that I should not be a professor and that my happiest days were all in data and code. And my saddest days were in my dissertation. And that's like as great a lesson to learn from grad school as anything, because it helped me uh, steer my course into industry, jumped to Wayfair, learned a lot about uh, like day-to-day -day use cases of um, machine learning and data science and e-commerce, uh, was on their pricing team. So I got to keep some of my like economics training and be smart in some conversations while I was like a complete noob in other conversations and um then jumped from there to IntelliCare where I feel like I'm in a pretty sweet 
spot to really live in the problem space that I studied as a grad student. And so am, you know, thinking often about search and matching problems as a grad student. And now I get to like work at a company where search and matching is the name of the game. And we are searching and matching together nurses and nursing homes and, and for, for listeners and telecare is a app where nurses can go pick up individual shifts or like a small bundle of shifts at nearby nursing homes. And, and so it's like, how do you match the nurses with these shifts in a way that's like maximally efficient is, is what we do. So a fun set of data science problems, a fun set of, uh, labor economic problems as well. And it's all happening like every day is a new study and, and we get to learn a lot of things. It's cool. That's right. Yeah. Your P your PhD, yeah, you were looking at marketplace, effective marketplace with labor. I, how does that inform now your view on AI and its ability to create effective marketplaces? So on one hand you have maybe the more predictable side, which is the, the demand side, right? Where, you know, things, things are shifting, but people need care, right? Like there's people, yeah. you know, the baby boomers need help. And so now you have nurses that, you know, you have to match, but I think I, maybe you can correct me if I'm wrong on this, but the supply side is a little bit more tricky. And uh, in some ways where you now need to understand people's schedules, their preferences, all of this, and what is the possibilities then of AI and integrating all of this data on a personal level to match and to make decisions on this effective uh, uh, you know, market? Yeah, I think the short answer to your question is like, how did my training influence how, how we think about data science and telecare? And, and like the short answer is that search frictions are a real thing and a and a big thing as well. And it that's true in the labor market generally, but it's also very true in a very like niche labor market as, as we have. And you, it's easy to like forget that when you're just looking at the macro data or if you're even, you know, even just looking at our data. Um, but when you're like kind of in it every day and you're trying to like reduce your unemployment rate as, as it would be, um, it, it becomes pretty clear that like finding good matches for everyone is a really hard thing to do. And it's really easy to come up with like good matches for a small number of people and a small number of nursing homes, uh, like your best 10% of nurses and your best 10% of nursing homes, really easy to, you know, come up with those matches, but like, where do you fit the rest of the puzzle pieces together? And and as soon as you like fill one shift, it's off the table and you're left with fewer puzzle pieces to match together with, with uh, the nurses that you have. Um, what does it do for like, how does that influence our view of AI is, I think that it's really the only scalable hope that we have for making big gains in this space. And there's, it's such like, a bajillion piece jigsaw puzzle that to do it all by hand, like you have not a prayer of being able to do it well. Um, or I should say you could do it well, but you'll never be able to like do enough of it to, um, to like really scale as a business. And so you, you need 
good, smart algorithms that can identify patterns in what people like and in what facilities need and match people together as best you can. It actually brings me to the memory of Southwest and the issues that they had when <laughs> uh, this big outage happened. And you had a bunch of people manually trying to schedule these pilots because of all of these issues. Mm -hmm. uh, and this provides, I think, the hope that you're talking about with AI, which is if you can now create out of great complexity, better decision making across these complex landscapes, then that gives us a hope to scale and it hopes, you know, to make things much more efficient. I, yeah. I, I, I'm, I'm curious, though, on choice and the role of choice in a bundle of options in the supply side. So as an example, one thing that we've been studying is uh, GPS and traffic detours, individual decision making around that. How often mm -hmm. do you rely on AI or the recommendation you know, uh, to take the detour route? And actually, for an established technology, we found that not everybody does. There's a lot of people that still defer to their own better judgment because they've been burnt enough times on taking that detour. And yeah. what this has shown is the importance of choice in being able to not necessarily by default, except uh, maybe a, recommend, a recommendation. But what are your thoughts on this role, this critical role of choice and being able to present a user with some options Certainly, you recommend in in a in a in a beautified uh, maybe a simplified way what the best recommendation would be, but that they still have choice in being able to self-select in. Um, yeah, I think that's a really a really good spot to be in, and maybe even like the best world to be in is when AI is giving you recommendations and you get to consider those recommendations as res as recommendations and and then make your own decisions i think there's a lot of great things about that type of world um and i think of one example a conversation that i had with uh a basketball executive who will remain unnamed because I'm not sure if this is like a public, a publicly shareable conversation. But let's say this guy is making picks on draft night. And I happen to know this guy. And there was a few years ago, this executive had, uh, I'll say a top five pick. And there were some very hyped uh, players to be picked. Um, my friend knows that I'm like one of these data nerds. And so I'm talking to him one day and I'm like, so how do you make these decisions? Do you like, you famously did not go with like the number one recommended person. You kind of like did something else and picked someone else instead. Like what informed that decision? Was it your like little army of PhDs or was it your gut? And he said, I, I keep the PhD guys around because they're interesting to talk to and they make me think about a lot of things. But in the end, I went with my gut. And he turned out to make like a famously good decision. And and so that was kind of like, take that you data people, because like the number one guy was kind of a dud and the person that this team went with instead was like now a big superstar. Um, but there are also bad examples. They don't all work out this way. Um, you can certainly, you know, the world is, life is full of good and bad choices, whether they're informed by data or not. 
Yeah, it's not so probabilistic, right? An individual choice like that. I mean, certainly you have a, well, there's a 65% chance that this person is going to be an all-star, right? In this example. Yeah, for sure. Where, yeah. you know, you have all of the different, you know, their height, maybe the, the, the position, you know, how they performed previously. But I think that there is something about that in terms of development. I think any founder, for example, knows that a decision is just the tip of the iceberg. And then the shifts that you make along the way. So like conditioning and a coach and the teammates that surround oh, you certainly are going to influence your growth, right? Yeah, yeah absolutely. Um, yeah, there's abundant noise and you only get to live your life once. Like you only get to see the success of each player once and everybody's kind of different. And so uh, it is often hard to draw robust conclusions from those things. And often we're kind of stuck with individual anecdotes and be like, well, clearly in this time, you know, because this worked out, therefore like human judgment is always better than, uh, than, you know, robot judgment or AI or, or whatever it is. But, um, but it's probably not the case everywhere. Well, let's push on that a little bit. I know we talked a little bit about, you know, Daniel Kahneman. Yeah, I mean, you're big. You, you, you love this book. I mean, you, you, you I, I'm, a, I'm a fan. I'm a fan of Daniel Kahneman. And here's the most recent book that he's written, uh, Noise, and I highly recommend it. Um, if you've read his his more famous book, Thinking Fast and Slow, there's, I don't know, maybe like 40% overlap between those books. So he definitely recycles some content from his first book. But um, but in a nutshell, what the book is about is just that uh, human decision-making, especially in certain circumstances, can be very noisy in ways that would make most people feel uncomfortable. But there's either not visibility into that data or it's just kind of like out in the fringes and it's not, you know, part of a mainstream conversation and hasn't really caught people's attention. Um, so I think, you know, he's writing this book to draw attention to some of these uh, noisy decisions that are made, but because we only live our lives once and most of us don't, uh, you know, go to court multiple times with multiple judges and see like a pattern of averages, like it's easy for us to, uh, not look into human decision-making as flawed or different because we just live it once. Well, and why is this? I mean, ultimately the beauty, I think that maybe let me rephrase, but the point is, is that let's say that you only have a bounded view of the world because you only have so much access to data, right? In a specific sphere that you have. Mm -hmm. And now you open up to AI and there's a lot of data, you know, even in like in, in the metaverse, this idea yeah. of the metaverse is actually more about centralized data than it is about, you know, some you know, virtual experience, I, I think. But this idea of like that there is this eye that sees a lot more data and now can prioritize maybe based on what is actually significant in a decision versus what is insignificant based on the access of variables. So omitted variable bias, which I think we learned here is like the cardinal sin of all models. But like, yeah, this is totally true for human decision making because you only have so much access. You don't have all the infinite time to go collect data. And if AI does have access to that data, it seems like at least it would have a lot more input uh, than what a human might have in, you know, certain decisions, correct? 
Yeah. Um, so I'll, I'll read a few bullets from the intro of this book just, and I promise I'm not just like, uh, this isn't a book report, but, but he gives a few bullets that I think call out a few industries that I normally don't think of as being subject to a lot of like noise or volatility. And there's a lot of trust that humans are making good decisions. So he says, medicine is noisy. Child custody decisions are noisy. Forecasts are noisy. It's pretty broad because there's many different forecasts. Asylum decisions are noisy. So whether an asylum seeker will be admitted into the United States depends on something like a lottery. A study of cases found that one judge admitted 5% of applicants, another a judge admitted 88% of applicants. And so the title of the study is like just refugee roulette. And it's just up to chance whether you get in or not, depending on who sees your case. Uh, personnel decisions are noisy. So like who you hire and who you interview, uh, bail decisions are noisy. Forensic science is noisy, even like looking at fingerprints, which I had no idea until I read this book was like, I just thought it was a science because eh? they call it forensic science. And so like, I thought if they got your fingerprint, it's like a done deal, but you can show the same fingerprint to the same forensic scientist a month later in a big stack of fingerprints. And they might not declare it a match as they did when they first saw it. There's like, there's a human there that's making a call. Like, is it close enough or is it different? And, and there's noise in those, in those decisions. And then like even patents are, are noisy as well. So like those are some of the cases that they go into, but it's, it's very unsettling to me to think of things like our justice system or like refugees seeking asylum, that those outcomes are arbitrary based on the human making the decision. And if the judge is like in a good mood or a bad mood, then that influences your outcome. And those are opportunities where data, and I'll say AI in quotes, but it could even just be very simple rules to anchor people to a more like consistent outcome and a more fair outcome can be a really great thing. But there's also like discomfort with a lot of humans thinking that like, if I go to court and I just like fill out a form and send it to a computer and then get my sentence. Like that's not a world that most people are excited to live in, even if the outcomes are like demonstrably more fair. Yeah. I mean, I think that this is very true in most organizations too. Like let's say that you have a, um, a hiring decision, right? Like somebody's going to hire someone and you've just had a bad lunch, right? Like somebody, you know, you didn't eat something very well, or yeah. maybe you just had I, a- I just came out know, of the like, worst meeting and now I have to interview this poor person and you're just gonna get the worst of me. And it's- Yeah, and, and like, there just isn't synergy, right? And so yeah. I think you're driving to an interesting point here, which is uncertainty and the role that it plays in decision-making and maybe not even uncertainty. It's more around the unpredictable, like the you, you said consistency, right? Is that yeah. at least with a model, you have an input, you have an output, it's a predictable thing, right? And so, and even error can be measured, right? And, you know, all of this. Whereas yeah. human judgment, in the standpoint of consistency, it would be viewed as very flawed comparatively because we are pretty situational. We are contextual. Yeah. And yeah. this is just how we are as humans. This is part of it. If, if you're yeah. in a city, as much as we talk about 
you know, bias and racial bias, you know, if you're in Chicago or in a Pittsburgh versus a, um, you know, Austin, Texas, situationally, you're, you know, you're attuned to different people in a specific place. When I was in Brazil, you know, I, I'd go for the summers in Brazil. It's just a different situation. It's a different context. Your brain is yeah. trying to adjust to different situations. And that's very complex for a lot of us to do. Uh, yes. And that's like, that's cool of you to even admit that, because I think most of us, when we think about our decision making, we think it's pretty good. And if you want to test that out, just ask anyone, you know, like, how do you feel about your, like your diet? And do you think that you like have a pretty good diet? And almost anyone you talk to will say, oh, it's pretty good. And that that's, that's the answer that you'll get almost every single time. And it doesn't matter who you talk to. Not everybody has a pretty good diet, but, but when we evaluate ourselves, we're, we tend to be very generous and forgiving of like the noise and it's justified by like the situation. And we maybe even project it onto the things and people around us instead of, uh, really kind of being attuned to, uh, trying to anchor ourselves to like a consistent point to, to make decisions from is is a hard thing to do well um, and i think this goes to an important point now so in decision making if we just like in any business performance kpi metric whatever mm -hmm. you have to measure something many times to improve it and you have to monitor it and you have to see the delta in human decision making this is very challenging because of the inconsistencies and yeah. Because it's to your point, you have a sample size of one for yeah, you right, only, and so now there's not one, really you only not have one sample. Yeah, yeah, you there, there's there's not a, a, a <laughs> and so okay for for the social scientist this drives us crazy because our R squareds are very low compared to the <laughs> physical sciences. But here's here's an important piece of that. Then how if we're gonna crack this nut, how do you measure? A good decision what does good judgment mean in terms of a metric and this is very challenging to do because so many inputs so many things are not codified again one of the reasons for this idea of the metaverse in many ways is to challenge the paradigm i tend to not agree with a metaverse because there's a lot of power that's rendered in one space and that's kind of you know that's a different debate but yeah. from the standpoint of measurability of a decision an ai algorithm is basically measured in its ability to be consistent then for the most part and in, in providing an output that's similar across the board whereas for a human this is almost an impossibility yes and and that reducing noise generally is a pretty good thing and there are some some cases where it might not be if you think of like this is a bit of a, a jump, but go with me here. If you think of like biodiversity, like if there's only one type of plant in all the world, then you're like, you are at risk of, you know, some virus just like wiping out everything. And so having diversity can be a good like insurance against situations changing in the future that would, uh, that would be hurtful. Um, and and so certainly like some diversity in the human experience is good. And if you're going to be like training your AI models, it's also very important to have uh, diversity in your outcomes and experiences as well. But I think 
the real value in like if you really have a good handle on AI and like we were using AI to improve decision making and humans are maintained in the loop, then you would be thoughtful about using it in some places, but maybe not all places. And for many people, but not necessarily all people so that there's, you know, you still want some training data coming in uh, and you don't want to just like train your models on the what the model predicted a year ago and a two years ago and three years ago. Like this is a big question to me is like, what will chat GPT be learning in 10 years when it's like generated so much content and this is like, it just regurgitates it and cycles it through. And do you end up at some like local minimum and hurt your ability to learn in the future because you've eliminated so much noise? Um, is uh, It's weird for me to think of that at like the broad, like global level. I'm usually thinking about that in terms of like our, our shift recommender system or something like uh, that's a lot more like small scale and closed. But, um, but when you're thinking about like the robot takeover of the world, I guess you can think of, uh, think of it at this scale as well. Well, and I think to the individual, it's an interesting contextual question of which is better. There is a philosophical side of this that will never be disentangled from the probabilistic, you know, the, 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 the consistency question. Certainly, if you're looking for an A to B, then AI in that optimization equation seems to be far better in highly complex situations. The problem then comes down to the Jean Valjeans of the world. You know, I love thinking about AI decision making in terms of Jean Valjean. Jean Valjean should have been in jail. And he, you know, this Javert was absolutely right. And this is what drove him literally insane. Yeah. And at the same time, look at the greatness of someone who can change a heart, which is disruptive, maybe probabilistically, not likely mm -hmm. to happen across offenders. But at the same time, there was that one that did great greatness, that became great. And I think in all of us, this is the challenge to AI decision making is the Cinderella story, the change story, the change of heart story, the, and all of us want to experience that as part of the human condition. And so therefore, if we start accepting companies that intermediate for the individual, and that's really what companies are becoming, right? The LinkedIn's of the world, they are automating the content that you bring in after you like some, yep. uh, you know, connect with folks. So they're doing that. What about the credit card companies or the uh, banks? They're mm -hmm. automating fra fraud, right? Detection. They're, you know, and so they intermediate for us through trust. We start believing that these algorithms that are driving things that automatically make decisions for yeah. us, that they're good. But the problem here is that the more that we lean upon that, the more dependency that we have. And so I'd love for you to talk a little bit about the risks of AI dependency and the irreversibility potentially of we start outsourcing decision making to these things. How likely are you? capable of being able to make decisions for yourself uh, in a paradigm where you've outsourced a lot of micro decisions? Yeah, I, I'll stick mostly within kind of the business lens and then maybe pivot to the more personal lens. But you, in the context of like approving or, or denying loan applications, for example, um, the number of people required to do that manually is very large. The number of algorithms required to do that is, you know, 
takes a lot of people to build a, a good one, but at the end, it could just be one, even a very simple algorithm that approves or, or denies a loan. And so allows you to like operate at a much larger scale. And once you're operating at that scale, it's very hard to walk back because you typically allocate the other people to do other things. And so then it's like, hey, now we need to manually review these. Then you're like, well, I don't have the personnel to do these because, you know, people are busy doing other things instead. Um, and maybe there's an appeal process or something that can like, I don't know, give some sort of second chance for people to have their uh, loan reviewed by a person. And, and that makes people feel good that they can like have a second chance and be reviewed by a person. And if it's a good person reviewing it, then it could also be good. And it could also be bad in that like you maybe pick out some Cinderella's, but you can also like, you know, give loans to uh, what's like the opposite of Cinderella, some someone like a Ursula or someone like some other <laughs> some some uh, like villain or something like you uh, that that is a potential outcome as well. Um, but at least you have the recommendation of the algorithm. And at least you have the data from the application. And so hopefully the person reviewing this isn't going to like just flip a coin or like spin around in their chair and be like, yes, no. Uh, or uh, like their deviation from the mean is, is probably small in a way that makes, you know, the risk of human decision-making uh, smaller as well. And so, yeah, it, it's a trade-off. Like when you have a lot of variants, you can get these like really cool success outliers, which are very like inspirational. Um, they don't make a lot of like books or Disney movies about like the outliers on the opposite end. Well, maybe they do. They show up in like crime documentaries or something of like the, the guy, catch me if you can, or something like the guy who gets a loan but it turns out he's like a total scammer. Uh, this is, uh, this can happen as well. And I mean, you can potentially fool an algorithm as well as a human if you, if you can like study it and figure it out. I mean, it, it depends a lot on the algorithm, I guess. Well, and I think what this lends itself to in this new age is observability, rule setting, um, deliberate uh, planning. Because, and I'll use an example, you've made me think of a wonderful experience trying to get my appraisal adjusted for the city, you know, Travis County in Austin, Texas, when I had a certain value placed on my home, and it was a lot of money that it was going to be in taxation. And so I did all of my research. Can you believe that? I, you know, I was, you know, working at a university, I thought, gee, maybe if I go there and I debate my case with some multiples in hard data, on the comparables, then they will clearly see with mm -hmm. a good story that I'm right and that they were wrong in their appraisal. Well, I couldn't have been more wrong. I went with the multiples and it showed, I think it was like a 5% uh, less value than what they had appraised it for. And they gave no reason in rejecting my comparables. It was yeah. blasphemous to me. I yeah. couldn't believe yeah, yeah. it. 
the well, institution had been set up using these, you know, and, and this, for the social planner, the model was absolutely efficient because now you only had a certain percentage of the population that would come in debate. But very small percentage of the people, regardless of the story, regardless of the comparables, regardless of the data, were uh, 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 had a positive outcome to what they were trying to do. Now, what I did find out, unfortunately, is that corruption is how you win these things. You have to know someone. You have to circumvent the process. And so now yeah. the rules of the game are favoring those who know how to game the system. And I think this is the biggest risk that we have. It is the exact same experience that I had, which I felt unfair you know, I was, yeah. I had data in my head. I had all of these proof. I <laughs> gave a good story. In fact, Ben, I probably gave the best pitch that day or they, that quarter. I'm convinced. I had practiced it. It might be the best pitch they ever heard. Uh, probably. Probably. Yeah. And yet when I asked them, when they said we are going to reject this, I said, why? And they said, well, just because. They, 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 they couldn't <laughs> even fathom that yeah. I would ask them someone, uh, such an audacious question. And so... But to me, I think I learned an important lesson that day, which is the rules of the game and the transparency become exalted in, in the AI model world of decision making, where the justification and the rules of the exception must be set for there to be fairness and for people yeah. to actually move forward with that as a, as a, as a, as a community or a society before rejecting yeah. outright. And that's yeah. one of the challenges, right? Yeah, well, and this is why, like, when I put AI in quotes, it could also be simple rules. Like, if your appraisal is equal to your square footage times five plus your, you know, whatever, like, if, if those are all laid out uh, in an equation, if you, a good example of this is a congressional seat allocation based on population, like, the equation is just there. There is no, we, we do not debate, like, we debate about, you know, how and the census occurs and, you know, politicians will try and like, you know, change how we count people. But once the people are counted, there is very little debate around like how many states get how many Congress people. And that's like a delightfully boring thing because it's just an equation. It's just there. Like there's, there's, you know, nothing to discuss. It's set. Um, the, and that would be nice to have that in other aspects of our life because of the transparency and the explainability of it. And, and that fairness is, feels good. Like it's, it feels nice to be treated fairly and, um, and algorithms can do a good job of being fair. They can also, as and you and I are probably thinking of many of the same counterexamples, they can also be like consistently unfair or, or, like you've removed a lot of the noise, but you're like, you're biased and, and you are like, instead of being, I don't know, wrong, like 50% off 10% of the time. Now you're like a hundred percent off 5% of the time, or like in, in some way you're just like anybody who looks a certain way or lives in a certain zip code is like consistently shut out. And, and that obviously is bad. Well, and it's also not optimal. It'd be bad. And so we're like, we're, if we can get the best of both, and I do believe that we can, then we, you know, embrace AI for what it's good at, take its recommendations as recommendations, uh, you know, let good people, and this is like probably where it all unravels, is like, you know, let good people who don't accept bribes review the recommendations of that and, uh, you know, 
depart from your GPS recommended course where they know a shortcut because they've traveled this many times uh, and, you know, can consistently beat it, then uh, then we have a better world to live in, I think. I think um, so, too. I, I think that what's interesting about your case about maybe the favorable unfair, so or not un, uh, the favorable uh, erroneous, uh, uh, non, what is it? It's uh, suboptimized, right? Uh, I was connecting with you know, a telecom company because the internet went out. And I learned that if I had padded and said a few words, they would automatically offer me $30 credit. And so I did that once and then I did it a second time and it did the same thing. And yeah. so I realized that you can also game through yeah. the automation. I thought, oh, this is yeah. great. You know, this is wonderful. I don't want to talk to anybody yeah. anyway. And $30 yeah. sounds great. It sounds like it's compensating me fairly for my time. And so you have that situation where maybe it's it's erroneous, right? But then there's the other side of this bias, which now it's unfair. And I think what it lends itself to for an optimal system is transparency on the model. If in the in the um, approval process or the rejection, they had said, well, these are the variables that we consider. These is the data to get a different decision. You must provide 20 within the last two months. And that yeah. is what we legislatively agreed to in this county. That is a very different equation than you're in a room. And if you know somebody, you're gonna get a favorable response versus an unfavorable yeah. one. And I think this is the challenge, I think, of our society going forward with decision-making in AI. Part of this is driven by the fact that there can be some transparency and there should be. With any type of public uh, algorithm that's used for these types of social uh, um, planning uh, decisions, there should uh -huh. be transparency to the algorithm so wow. that one can absolutely have a certain um, a certain uh, out outcome when they uh, approve so that you can battle data with data and using the same algorithm. The problem now comes down to the unsupervised side, and this is the much more complex issue, is when folks at OpenAI have no idea what the output's going to be tomorrow than it was today. And so now you, and of course, there's also trade secret protection, and that brings a whole nother layer of complexity. Yeah. Yeah. But the idea around where, is it really that uncertain? Uh, or has it removed that much uncertainty? And the, the, the you know, the, I think that is, I think the big question that we face in the next decade is how, how much, uh, uh, dependency we can have on the certainty of different models anyway. I, I think the transparency is also valid for the human decision-making. And, and that is a big recommendation of Kahneman generally is like when you're evaluating people to hire that you like score them on consistent things and you ask them consistent questions. And it's like maybe less of a fun conversation to interview someone in that way, but like then you have transparency and they say like, why did you hire this person? You can say, well, because their uh, technical abilities were a five out of five and because they're, uh, I don't know, maybe I didn't hire them because their uh, communication was a zero out of five or something like, but you have data, even if it's come out of your head, you've still kind of like imposed that uh, rule of transparency on your decision making. And you will make different decision makings when you operate in that framework and you like kind of prepare to be audited for the decisions that you're making, uh, then, yeah, you can imagine that uh, a lot of, you know, think of criminal justice, if you think of like asylum, if you think of, uh, 
a lot of these, you know, fields that we mentioned earlier, like those could operate very differently. If with every decision that you make, you have to like fill out in a way like a scorecard or something that like justifies the decision that you made. Um, but, and you're right, you do run into like some frictions operating at like a corporate level or something where it's like, hey, our model is our model and we don't like reasonably can't just like publish it as a scorecard that's open to the world to see because then like we can't charge you $2 every time that you call our API. Uh, this, um, but yeah, maybe there are ways that you can still audit those types of systems. And many people like talk about AI as a black box that's difficult to, to understand. Um, and in many ways it can be, and some models are, are more opaque than, than others. Um, and I, I guess my like plea for any listeners is that we hold that in comparison to human decision-making, which can be equally a black box and and that we kind of reach for the best in both and not just like categorically dismiss ai because we don't understand it and instead like put it to the same level of uh scrutiny like put ourselves under the same level of scrutiny that we put these ai systems and then you know go with what's best i think that's a great summary of this conversation i think that this recommendation of yeah elevate Elevate the accountability, transparency, and audit, auditability or observability of your own decision making. And to figure out how to optimize decision making with AI first, I think that certainly there will be contextually a movement to automate just because that's what we do. We're pathably scales, people. Yeah. Right? But I think that, you know, ultimately, I, I, this recommendation of let's improve the pieces of both. And that will elevate our decision-making period. Mm -hmm. And it will also help to differentiate when to use AI, when it's okay to use AI for decision-making yeah. versus when we should hold those cards closer and make those decisions for many reasons uh, as, yeah. as humans, right? Yeah, it sounds good to me. Uh, that's good. I think that we've solved the world's problems. Ben, thank you for joining today. I uh, clearly <laughs> enjoyed this, but I thank you for, uh, thanks for a fascinating conversation. Yeah. Great time, Carlos. Thank you for joining us on the AI Decision Guy podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review our show. And be sure to tune in to our future episodes as we continue to explore the ever-evolving landscape of AI and its impact on decision-making. Until next time.